This is Dr. Canadiana, a podcast about Canadian theatre history. I'm your host, Ashley Williamson. This special episode of Dr. Canadiana has been written and recorded for Dr. Kelsey Jacobson's Drama 341 class at Queen's University as a prelude to a virtual class I will be teaching at the end of this week. Our topics are Robert Lepage and Total Theatre. Okay, to begin, who's Robert Lepage? A more in-depth biography will come in the second part of this podcast, but briefly, he's a Quebecois theatre maker and he and his production company, Ex Machina, have spent more than 25 years creating performances in Canada and abroad. His productions are characterized by their epic scale, a focus on action and movement, a decentralization of dialogue and narrative, and a cohesive vision achieved with scenography and costumes. His productions have also appropriated text, songs, stories, and performance practices from a variety of Indigenous nations and marginalized communities. This is because Robert Lepage's work fits into the genre of total theater, a genre characterized by a vision with a capital V, epic scale, detailed planning practices, the decentralization of playwrights and performers, cultural appropriation, and dudes. So many dudes. Let's begin by answering some questions about total theater. Where did it develop? Why was it developed? And who was at the forefront of the development? I will follow that discussion with a taxonomy of total theater, defining its essential elements. Then I will position total theater in the Canadian theater context with the discussion of Robert Lepage, his theater productions, and his position as Canada's major representative on the international stage. Okay. If art exists chiefly as a reaction to the environment that the artist is living in, such as the social, political, and economic realities, as well as the artistic movements that came before then, total theater is no exception. Its formation was a response against naturalism and realism, the theatrical styles that dominated playwriting, directing, and acting in the late 19th century. Total theater also developed alongside other avant-garde artistic practices characterized by their strong associations with particular European countries. So surrealism in France, expressionism in Germany, constructivism in Russia, that's my favorite, futurism in Italy, and Dadaism, which started in Switzerland and then kind of spread all over. Aggressive political manifestos also characterized these groups and their resistance to establish societal norms and hierarchies. Okay, as an aside, Antonin Artaud and his Theater of Cruelty comes out of this early 20th century artistic reckoning, and although his work is not quite total theater, it will go on to influence Peter Brook, one of mid-20th century total theater greats. Okay, aside over. Russia, Italy, Germany in particular, spent the early 20th century in precarious political stability, characterized by the destabilization of monarchies, peasant revolts, and territorial annexations. European countries' geographical proximity to each other, intertwined histories, and intermarried leading families meant that one country's instability would have repercussions in surrounding nations. Indeed, these would become the leading causes of World War I. The idea of total theater starts in this turn-of-the-century period, when the 19th century ideas about art, theater, and national identity are all in flux. 
The practitioners of early total theater, like Gordon Craig and Max Reinhardt, were living and working in Russia, Austria, and Germany in the early part of the century, when war and revolution were pressing realities. Inevitably, Reinhardt, who was Jewish, was forced to flee Austria and immigrate to England because of the unrelenting pressure of the Nazis. It is not surprising that the drive to develop a theatrical system predicated on total control would spring up from such instability and uncertainty. The development of total theater by America's Norman Bel Geddes and Robert Wilson and Englishman Peter Brook were no less influenced by their artistic, political, or social environments. Bel Geddes developed his design aesthetic in, the 19, in 1930s Hollywood and was deeply influenced by the post-oppression, pre-World War II optimism in technology, modernity, and the future. His book, Horizon, which moved beyond engineering function to add form, affected what we think of as the look of the 1930s, his creative influence then moving beyond just the theater. Brooke and Wilson, born well into the era of total theater, were influenced by the art of their predecessors, but were making theater reacting to the political and social turmoil of their own eras, like the Vietnam War and the cultural shifts around sexuality, class hierarchies, and social norms that it prompted, as well as a response to the economic realities of the 1970s and 80s. Robert Lepage's artistic practice was also influenced by a specific cultural epoch, which I will examine in part two. The most common definition of total theater is one director dominates the creation of the production, making him the author, or in French, we use auteur, of the piece. The final piece, therefore, becomes a personal expression of the artist himself. How is this totality achieved? Friends, let us create a taxonomy of total theater. First on the list, vision. Vision, to me, is very closely linked to the idea of control, and one person having creative control over the whole process. The vision is a singular, driving, creative force that shapes the production. This idea begins with Gordon Craig's 1905 book, Art of Theater, where he writes of the, quote, controlling imagination, end quote, and its role in theatrical productions and a strong personal artistic vision characterized the work of not only Craig, but Max Reinhardt, Norman Bel Geddes, Robert Wilson, Peter Brook, and then later Robert Lepage. This vision and its control over the process is also the element from which all the other pieces extend like spider webs. The next essential aspect, scale. The sets are not just large, but multi-tiered and will require the renovation of an existing space or perhaps the building of an all new one. The play is not two hours, but rather four, six, eight hours long, or maybe it's a few days. There isn't just a large cast. There are 300 people in it, or maybe a thousand performers. It is the epic scale of this kind of theater that gives us the image of Max Reinhardt directing Everman, standing on a ladder, barking orders at the cadre of minions who will help him enact his vision. This is an image that has remained in popular culture that demonstrates what a director does. In order to ensure that the controlling imagination works and to help facilitate the grand scale of these productions, I would propose the next element of total theater is detailed plans. This is seen most famously in Reinhardt's director's book, which anyone who has directed anything in the last hundred years has felt compelled to compile. 
You should see mine for A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Farm or The Man of La Mancha. In total theater, these books became extraordinarily detailed. Costume design, mask design, lighting design, set design, complex tracking of all performers and every movement or gesture. The idea was these books would be so detailed, so thorough, that the production could be executed without the presence of the director. This passage from Chapter 5 of the Cambridge Anthology of Drama describes this kind of planning. The director's book for each performance gave a moment-by-moment placing of the actors, their moves, gestures, even facial expression and tone of voice, written in the text or notated on ground plans of the stage setting, together with detailed notes on the lighting, music, sound effects, in addition to three-dimensional sketches of each scene prepared in the minutest detail before the actors were hired or rehearsal for a particular production began and revised with added notes over the years a production ran. These effectively controlled not only the actors, but every element of the production." End quote. The book would exert total control before actors were cast and well after the auteur had moved on to another project. These books often became the artifacts themselves, Bel Geddes' plans for the Divine Comedy toured art galleries through the U.S. and Europe, although the production itself never came about. Peter Brook rejected the idea of a director's book that would have him come into rehearsals with all the movements and staging worked out. Rather, he wanted all of his work to be done improvisationally, in the rehearsal room, with his actors and collaborators. And then he would write down all the gestures and the staging and the expressions and set them into a book. It was a different method to achieve a similar end. Okay, the next element, decentralization of the playwright with text and narrative in favor of impressions. Because the vision was mostly just that, a vision, a visual, Craig stripped away dialogue in favor of movement, action, and scenography, calling the stage itself a living entity. Reinhardt positioned the director with the assistance of a dramaturg, above the contributions of the playwright. Robert Wilson famously cut, condensed, reshuffled classical texts, as did Peter Brook, who, quote, reduced Shakespearean text to patterns of sound, end quote. Also, and I do not know what this is, every total theater practitioner took his turn at telling Shakespeare in his own way, especially Hamlet. Hamlet! These auteurs also spent a great deal of time sorting out the actor problem. For Craig, this meant saying things like, the actor should be abolished in favor of the marionette, and that plays should be about shapes and not people. He also asserts that the director is the most important element of the theater. Okay, another aside. Let's note that Gordon Craig's mother was Ellen Terry, who was one of the most celebrated actresses of the late Victorian English stage and who was also great friends with George Bernard Shaw, an acclaimed playwright. I do wonder if there is something more than artistic experimentation underlining Craig's rejection of actors and playwrights. Hmm. Anyway, the urge to replace actors with puppets is not Craig's alone. Reinhardt, Wilson, Brooke, and Lepage all deploy this tactic and we will discuss their choice of puppets in our next section on appropriation. Some approached the issue of actors by creating specific training. 
Reinhardt advocated for common training and created an ensemble which gave him even more control of the finished product. Brooke took a similar approach. He called it collective creation. Please see episode four of this podcast for what that looks like in Canada, which is to say, not like Brooke. In this particular phase of Brooke's career, he worked through his ideas about Artaud's theater of cruelty and wrote his book, The Empty Space. This era of work with actors was marked with tightly controlled improvisation, ritualized movements, and a lot of psychological exploration. And here is another aside, more like a public service announcement. This is not an episode about Peter Brook, but I want to mention that this kind of actor training, the encouragement of extreme emotional states, ritualized vocalization using material that is spiritually or culturally out of context, and in particular improvisations that are violent, sexual, or gender-based, is not just the purview of Brook. There are many theater companies and directors operating this way through the mid-20th century. It is predicated on a kind of rehearsal hall hierarchy that crosses a line. And not just retroactively as we look back on it from our position now, it crossed a line then. And this style of training still prevails. It is not cool. Do not put up with it. PSA over. Later in the 20th century, the actor problem was sometimes solved by the director also being a performer, like Wilson and Lepage, who frequently played the central role in their productions. Being in the production is another way of exerting control over the production. Yes? Okay, now our final category is cultural appropriation. Yep, it's actually part of the formula. From Craig's desire to replace his actors with marionettes and deciding to use the spiritual essence of Banraku marionettes or Indonesian and Indian shadow puppets, to Brooke stripping away the cultural and religious significance of Maori chants and 17th century Sufi poetry to create sounds and rhythms, the mining of global cultural practices to make theater is central to total theater. Make no mistake, using cultural practices out of context has never been okay, but the earlier total theater makers can themselves be contextualized by the cultural fascination with non-Eurocentric art of the early 20th century, which to be clear was always othering, but not always malicious. This time period was marked with various cultural rages like Egyptomania, Orientalism, and Fulvrism. I was having an email exchange with a friend who's a scholar of the early 20th century modernism movement about writing this podcast, and he pointed out that this fascination with and appropriation of other cultures was itself a facet of modernism. He said, quote, So a big part of the modernist avant-garde break from tradition was that it rejected the idea of a national or period style. Basically, art is all about forms and ideas, not identities or values. So internationalism and formal appropriation becomes a big part of modernist art. This seemed like a rebellious and progressive gesture for people who equated national culture with capital N nationalism, which left modernists feeling a bit perplexed when post-colonial critics started saying, no, but wait, some of this is appropriation. So the big question about modernism ends up being, What's gained and what's lost when you remove the idea of national identity from art? End quote. To early 20th century artists looking to other countries and traditions for inspiration, 
was part of rejecting violent nationalism being forced on them by repressive governments. For example, the Nazis, Soviets, Italian fascists, rather than stealing from other cultures. But as time goes on, thinking that art has nothing to do with identity becomes a great excuse for white guys to steal shit from people and shutting down people who want to talk about their identities. By the 70s, when Brooke was leading sessions with actors on how to express personal trauma by breathing like a witch doctor or showing Uganda what he had interpreted their lives to be like in the ick, post-colonialist and post-modernists were starting to ask some hard questions about this particular aspect of total theater. It is undeniable that the historical, artistic, and cultural context from which total theater came does mean that cultural appropriation is foundational to total theater. It is as much a part of the formula as scale, detailed plans, movement over texts, and shapes over people. In the second half of this podcast, we will examine how this operates in Lepage's work. A final thought on the matter of control. It seems as though the end goal for most of these practitioners was to control the way the audience was receiving their work, how the audience was watching their work. Craig wants to control the dialogue between the director and the player. Bel Geddes was interested in creating a unified environment for his audience. His 1939 work, Futurama, positions the audience as the performer, creating a theatrical but totally mechanical show for them to experience in the form of an imaginative airplane trip before commercial air flight became common. Brooks' method of audience control was more visceral and confrontational. In Marat Saad, his actors careen into the audience, quote, forcing assistance from them, while at the end of the play, a line of capering and chanting inmates surge threateningly down the stage toward the audience, acting out the Marxist image of revolution in one step back, two steps forward, end quote. I have a lot of thoughts about this. A lot. This preoccupation with the audience reception of the work is an interesting idea to put alongside these directors' desires to enact a unified vision. It is as if they know that they can assert as much control over the actors, costumes, scenography. They can make models. They can choreograph a sea of people's every gesture, replace people with puppets, strip the text down to its barest rhythms. But they cannot make the audience understand their intentions. The people at the show will come in with their own minds, lives, sets of cultural expectations. They will have had a good day or a bad day. They will have read and loved Hamlet, or they will have read and hated Hamlet. They will know what Indonesian shadow puppets are, or they will have heard their grandmother recite Sufi poetry, or they won't have. You can try all you want, but the audience is really beyond anyone's total control. After the break, we get into the Robert Lepage of it all. This week's sponsor is here to help you with the unrelenting task of making dinner. New meal kit delivery service, Total Supper, is here to give you control. Total control. All the ingredients for your meal come pre-measured in a hundred tiny boxes contained in one giant box. Follow the meticulously detailed instructions, including diagrams and a small model of the supper so that you will finally understand. Also, Total Supper wants your meal to be epic. 
so there are five, six, seven, sometimes eight courses in every box. Total Supper takes classic recipes and reimagines them. This week's salad has been reduced to just a rhythm. Total Supper, let's make dinner a way bigger deal than it needs to be. Promo code LAPAGE. Okay, let's look at some Canadian Total Theater. Robert Lepage was born in Quebec City, December 12, 1957. He studied in Paris with Swift's director, Alan Knapp, in the late 70s, but returned to Quebec and joined Théâtre Repéré in 1982, becoming its artistic director in 1985. The company was known for including actors in its creative process. In 1989, Lepage was appointed artistic director for the French theater section of the National Arts Centre. However, by 1994, he had moved back to Quebec City, founding his company Ex Machina. The company moved into an old firehouse in 1997 that had been purposefully renovated to accommodate Lepage's cinegraphic and movie-making activities. For the last 25 years, Lepage and Ex Machina have produced shows on a very grand scale. For example, Peter Gabriel's 1993 Secret World Tour, which I saw and it was truly amazing. 2010's Totem for Cirque du Soleil in Las Vegas, or Wagner's The Ring Cycle at the Metropolitan Opera House in New York. The Met had to install steel reinforcements under the stage in order to support Lepage's roughly 45-ton set, which fits into that taxonomy under scale modification of existing space to accommodate the vision. Before we begin, I would like to say that Robert Lepage's artistic output is staggering. He has done so much work, so much. It is rumored he likes to work on 15 projects at once. It will therefore be impossible for me to discuss the totality of his work in this podcast. Unless we want me to total theater this thing and make it four hours long and extraordinarily detailed and full of my own reflexive expression. Yeah, no, me either. So this discussion will refer to a very narrow sample. Okay. Let's hold Lepage up to the definition of total theater. The Cambridge Anthology provides an excellent list of all the ways that Lepage's work fits with the work of the men we discussed in part one, and also how he adheres to the tenets of total theater. First, quote, he is a director who writes his own scripts, in which he then performs, having also designed the sets, plotted the lighting, and arranged the music or the film clips accompanying the action, end quote. This is in line with the definition of total theater. And it also positions Lepage alongside Wilson, since both men perform in their own productions. But the attention to every single other detail of this production also aligns him with Craig, Reinhardt, Bel Geddes, and Brooke. Next, they describe his work as ranging from, quote, highly personal one-man chamber pieces to mammoth, multilingual, epic productions lasting up to nine hours of performance time, end quote. Okay, so epic again we got the scale. There's also mention of his use of puppets and robots, which fit neatly into the taxonomy too. The excerpt further notes that Lepage's use of highly contemporary cutting-edge technology in his performances. Here's what a friend told me about seeing Image Mill, the 2008 production Lepage created to commemorate the 400th anniversary of Quebec City. Quote, it was incredible, absolutely massive production, 
The technology behind it all must have been incredibly complex, but it worked perfectly and was just very engaging and involving. And you forgot about the machinery and just marveled at the show and how the grain silos worked as screens. There were groups and families crowded on the shore, sitting on chairs and blankets, eating and drinking, and then ooing and eyeing. The selection of images and the animation was very well done. It was an excellent show, and the whole experience was unforgettable." End quote. This reminds me of Bel Geddes in particular and his Futurama Spectacular at the 1939 World's Fair, when he surrounded the audience with machinery and magic to make them feel like they were flying. But what we don't get from Lepage is the detailed pre-rehearsal planning documents like the others. He starts with a picture and builds out. Unlike Brooke, he does not improvise around a script, but stays almost entirely visual at first. And Lepage's process is that all the contributions or improvisations or collaborations with others are filtered through him, his vision. It is not a collective work, no matter how many contribute. It is a Lepage. So this is very similar then to Brooke, Wilson, and Craig. Oh, and the majority of his collaborators at Ex Machina are not performers, but rather technicians, mechanics, and engineers who can execute the technology he envisions at the center of his works. And then there's the classical text connection. Shakespeare plays are foundational material and will connect him to the lineage of total theater. Hamlet in particular. In his 1996 production, Elsinore, which was based on Hamlet, he played multiple roles himself from, quote, the internalized perspective of the unhappy prince, end quote, as Rick Knowles wrote in the Canadian Theatre Review. Robert Wilson played Hamlet in his 1995 production, Hamlet, a monologue. Honestly, with the Hamlet already. Anyway, Lepage created the work using Shakespeare's famous speeches, but not necessarily in order, and used a multimedia stage set to contextualize the language. So he is following the taxonomy by rejecting narrative, remixing the playwright, and putting the emphasis on sonography. It was his continued adaptation of Shakespeare's work that created his international reputation, making him, from the majority of the 1990s and the early 2000s, the representative of Canadian theatre on the international stage. In 1992, he directed A Midsummer Night's Dream for the National Theatre in London and was the first North American to direct for this company. A review in The Independent drew connections between Lepage and Brooke by comparing and contrasting the two men's productions set 20 years apart. The review says, quote, Lepage's magical use of simple imagery has led to his name being linked with that of Peter Brooke, whose groundbreaking production of A Midsummer Night's Dream was staged in 1971. The new production has attracted much curiosity, but where Brooks' production was airy and trebeze-born, Lepage's is earthy and wet, performed solely in a huge puddle of water circled by oozing black mud into which the actors frequently fling themselves, end quote. The set was, in fact, a huge open puddle of real mud that made the theater smell like earth, added squelching and splooshing sounds to the actor's dialogue, and had the performers caked in mud by the end of the show. The same year, his series of productions of Shakespeare's Macbeth, The Tempest, and Coriolanus, all translated by Michel Garneau, began to tour throughout Europe, Japan, and Festival Transamérique. His style of theater, adaptations on a grand scale, 
was one of Canada's most high-profile cultural exports in the 1990s, alongside Celine. Lepage's Shakespearean adaptations continued into the 20th century with a 2011 production of The Tempest in French. The production was staged at the Wendake Amphitheatre near the St. Charles River, Quebec, and was produced in consultation and collaboration with the Huron-Wendat Nation. The cast was made up of Indigenous and non-Indigenous actors. Lepage is following the taxonomy, adaptation of text, large-scale performance spaces, large cast, and the use of cultural practices as theatrical tools. This Tempest was done in collaboration with Indigenous people and performers. Lepage also drew from his own Francophone roots by using chanson. It seemed to be an artistic rendering of that specific region of Canada on the St. Charles River, where Indigenous, French, and English people lived alongside each other for hundreds of years. Yes, of course, because of colonialism. This production followed a period when Lepage and Ex Machina became renowned for monumental productions like The Seven Streams of the River Ota and Dragon's Trilogy, which delved into Chinese culture and used Chinese performance and visual arts traditions to do so. However, in all these examples, the cultural aspects are used symbolically and imaginistically in a similar way to the modernists we talked about earlier, seeing this as appropriating forms and ideas rather than identities and values. This notion is supported by a description of the Tempest by Piet de Freya in Theatre Research in Canada as, quote, an eclectic melange of Shakespearean text, westernized Indigenous dance, Québécois chanson, nature-inspired mythology, and physicalized acting, end quote. The focus seems to be on the impressions, the chanson, the Shakespeare, the dance made, rather than a specific cultural understanding of any of them on their own or in conversation. This is why, when in 2018, in an era when more care is being taken with considerations of culture and race, Lepage made such a huge misstep with Slave and Kanada and was seemingly blindsided by the blowback. In June 2018, Lepage launched Slave at Théâtre de Nouveau Monde. It was a co-creation with Montreal singer Betty Bonifaci, a woman of European descent, for the Montreal Jazz Festival. The show was built around songs sung by Black enslaved people and laborers, but only had two Black performers. The rest were white. Then Kanada was launched the next month in July 2018. The production was in collaboration with Théâtre du Soleil in Paris and produced by Ariane Manushkin. The play portrays Canadian Indigenous history and includes an examination of the residential school system and material about missing and murdered Indigenous women. However, there were no Indigenous actors in the cast, and First Nation groups accused Lepage of cultural appropriation. Again, we are seeing specific social and political moments affecting the production of art. In this case, 2018, it is both the Truth and Reconciliation Commission bringing attention to the woeful, shameful way Canada has treated its Indigenous communities, and Black Lives Matter activists forcing the conversation about white supremacy and Blackness into the light. Using cultural material in his production as forms, shapes, sounds, and ideas is what Lepage has been doing his whole career. And not only was there little pushback or examination of this practice, he was rewarded nationally and internationally with directing contracts, spots 
at global theater festivals, work with art institutions all over the world. His way of doing theater, his take on total theater, garnered him the Companion of the Order of Canada, Officer of the National Order of Quebec, an induction into Canada's Walk of Fame, the Governor General's Performing Arts Award for Lifetime Artistic Achievement, the European Commission's Europe Theatre Prize for 2007, the Glenn Gould Prize. This is a case where two ideas can be true at the same time. I would propose the first idea is that Robert Lepage is very good at what he does, and his technical and creative innovations have expanded the possibilities of theater and what can be considered theater in a clear, tangible way. The second idea is that the way he makes theater, using the methods and principles of total theater, which are a vision, scale, detailed plans, decentralization of playwrights and performers, and cultural appropriation. His work can no longer be received the way he is used to it being received, and that to move forward, he will have to find a new formula. To those of you I'll be meeting on Friday, I look forward to talking with you more about Total Theatre and Monsieur Lepage. I welcome your questions. And I cannot wait to show you the one million pictures of Total Theatre performances that I have stolen from the internet. For those of you who listen, even though you are not my students, get ready. Series 2 is in the works. Until next time, eh? Sources consulted for this episode of Dr. Canadiana include Chapter 5 of the Cambridge Anthology of Drama, Robert Lepage and Ex Machina's pages on Canadian Theatre Encyclopedia, Rick Knoll's article about Elsinore in Canadian Theatre Review No. 17, Summer 2002, Pete DeFry's article in Theatre Research in Canada, Britannica.com's pages on Ellen Terry, Robert Lepage, Robert Wilson, and Peter Brook, Cambridge Theatre Online pages about Gordon Craig, Max Reinhardt, Norman Belgettis, Robert Wilson, and Peter Brook. The Independent Newspaper Theatre Review of Midsummer Night's Dream from 1992, a CBC article by Kevin Dotry about Slave in a Global News article from the 28th of December 2018 about Kanata, an article in the New York Times about the Met reinforcing its stage for the ring cycle by Daniel Watkin, an email exchange with Dr. Tim Euchre, and an email exchange with William Denton.